Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? Do you know that Reed College in Oregon actually offers an underwater basket weaving course? (laughs) Are you serious about this? (laughs) I mean, Reed is known for being a strange and wonderful place. It's actually one of those campuses I've always wanted to visit, but I can't say I'd heard about this course. Yeah, so I know underwater basket weaving has been a punchline for so long, but it's actually taught each year during a festival at Reed. And does it count for credit? I mean, it's more for fun, but I love that you can actually learn the skill. And actually, I I read this note from a student defending it where he was saying basically that in this ADHD world where we look at our phones every three seconds and, you know, we need to constantly be stimulated by technology, that being forced to concentrate on basket weaving in a pool with your face stuffed into a snorkel, that that was actually good for both his patience and concentration. And it also reduced his anxiety. I kind of like this defense. <laughs> and, and I mean, I think that's kind of the point, right? Like when you start looking around, there's so many of these quirky classes being taught around the country and many of them are way more valuable than you'd think. So I, I thought today would be a great time to spotlight some of the weirdest classes we could find. What do you say we dive in? Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikin. And we're so happy to welcome back our producer, Tristan. He's a super important part of this show, and he's been out for a few days, but we're very glad he's back. Well, speaking of back, it is back to school time, and to be honest, we're a little bit jealous. I mean, there's all these weird college classes out there, and we wish we could take them all. I mean, maybe not all of them, but definitely way more than we'd ever be able to. But that doesn't mean we can't talk about them. So that's what we're going to do today. We'll also talk to a couple of daring professors who've spearheaded some pretty unique courses of their own. So who's on the line today, Mango? Yeah, so we've got Kenneth Goldsmith, a poet and professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Kenneth actually teaches two unusual classes. One's called Uncreative Writing and the other's titled Wasting Time on the Internet. And we'll have some wonderful quizzes, too. All right. Well, before we dive in, we want to hear from you listeners. Let us know the weirdest college class you ever took or the one offered at your school that you always wish you'd taken but maybe didn't get a chance to. 
So send that in to parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Or you can call us on our fancy new fact <laughs> hotline, one eight four four pt genius So we look forward to hearing from you. Yeah, and of course, we'll be sending some swag to the top three entries. So we're really looking forward to that. All right, great. All right, so fair warning to any listeners who haven't perused the college course catalog in a while. You need to prepare to be jealous. I mean, these catalogs have expanded in some wild directions over the past decade or so. And the result is this smorgasbord of strange and quirky classes that you know, they kind of bring new meaning to the term liberal education. But I remember like some house courses that people used to teach even back when we were in college. Mm-hmm. Like during spring break, you could take this course called Just Enough Guitar to Impress Someone. And, <laughs> and, and by the end of the class, you'd learn to play something that sounds impressive, but actually isn't that hard, like Tangerine from Led Zeppelin. <laughs> but I, uh, I agree with you. These courses tend to stray pretty far from the core curriculum, but that definitely doesn't mean that they're altogether silly or or that they're meritless. Right. Although trying to sell your parents on the worth of them might be another story. Right. right. <laughs> you know, because we want to cover as many of these weird courses as we could, Mango and I actually split up our research for this episode. So we found the most interesting, surprising courses we could across, you know, a few few different broad categories. So we'll share our findings and see if we can build our own ideal course load for the fall semester. So uh, so where do you want to start, Mango? So I want to skip straight to the mouthwatering food classes because they're the most fun. And the first one we're going to start with is from Alfred University. It's called Maple Syrup, The Real Thing. Oh, the real. <laughs> I like that shade they're throwing there. Wait, isn't that the Coke slogan, though? Yeah, but this stuff is genuine. Oh, okay. I got it. The real, real thing. And the fact is that some senators from Vermont and Maine have actually introduced legislation that would make it a felony offense to sell fake maple syrup. So the stakes are actually pretty high, but the class sounds fascinating. It covers the history of maple syrup production, and that spans from traditional methods to some of the more cutting-edge harvesting methods that are used today. And students also get to take field trips to restaurants and local syrup producers, and they even get to go to a maple syrup festival. So, um, wow. but, but the best part, the best part of all of this is that every student gets to create and eat their own maple syrup. I mean, that does sound like a lot of fun. <laughs> and you know, I'm a total sucker for a good course description. Like in college, I almost took organic chemistry just because the class promised that, um, that you get to make something that's the scent of pears. <laughs> like you get to manufacture that in a lab and, and I'm terrible at chemistry, but I like pears. I love how you <laughs> fell for that with organic chemistry, which is maybe like the hardest class or the weed out class in college. But anyway, what did you learn about maple syrup? So, you know, I, I couldn't resist looking up some more facts about maple syrup. So here are a few facts from my new favorite website, Cottage Life. Oh, yeah. You want to shut up about this one. I know. The first one is that 80% of the world's maple syrup actually comes from Canada. So that surprises me. I mean, I, I, I feel like, you know, you always hear about Vermont's maple syrup that I wouldn't have guessed that that large of a percentage came from. I know. I feel like Canada. Vermont's always bragging about it, but Canada's yeah. so, so. Yeah, uh, they're king. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And, and, and it takes 40 years for a tree to actually become ready to tap. And then once it's ready, it takes about 40 liters of sap just to make one liter of syrup, which oh, is crazy. Wow. That is crazy. So, I mean, this is a pretty serious long-term investment to be able to get anything. So you said 40 years before they can get any syrup from this? Mm-hmm. Which, which is why a class is a good idea, right? Can you imagine yeah. just diving into the business without knowing about it? Yeah. But back to the college classes, there are actually a ton of classes out there that deal with the history of production and of specific foods and drinks. And so, for example, St. Mary's College of California offers a course on the science behind craft beer and brewing it. And Purdue University in Indiana has this wine appreciation class that helps students develop their palates. All right, wait. So let me make this clear. So California has the beer class and the Midwest has the wine appreciation class. <laughs> I know it almost seems backwards, right? But uh, in fact, there are a lot of California schools that offer courses on the business of winemaking. 
But Purdue's class is purely about appreciating the wine. But for all you listeners out there, like, it's only open to students who are 21 or older. So for anyone who's going to college there, they've got to pay their dues before getting to indulge in the weekly wine sippings. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, so the maple syrup class is a little odd, and the beer and wine classes would definitely make your parents take a second look at your course load. But what would you say is the food class that you found, I don't know, most surprising? So Penn State's College of Agricultural Studies has a course that's all about ice cream making. Oh, wow. All right. Well, what's the scoop on that? <laughs> so the course is actually called... Yeah, the... I said, what's the scoop? <laughs> yeah, okay. I did get I'm just making sure. <laughs> the course is actually called the Ice Cream Short Course, and it's this seven-day-long class that's open to industry professionals as well as students. Basically, people come from all over the world to take part in a bunch of workshops that teach them about the different aspects of ice cream and, you know, the technology used to make it. But the really crazy thing is just how long the class has been going on for. Penn State's been offering it every January for the last 126 years. Oh, wow. Seriously? Yeah, it's crazy. So, in fact, it's very likely the first continuing ed course ever offered in the U.S. It first started back in 1892 when the School of Agriculture held this uh, dairy manufacturing class in the winter. And uh, this is quoting the school. This is when farm work is least pressing and the boys can be spared. (laughs) Is that really what it says? The boys can be spared. That kind of sounds like an ad for like a group that likes to go without underwear, the uh, the commando (laughs) crew. Anyway, sorry. Ice cream making was was always part of the curriculum, but by 1925, the frozen treat became so popular in the U.S. that the course exclusively focused on ice cream. And so so you've got to figure in this time, Reps from every major ice cream place had started taking the course. So you've got Good Humor, Baskin Robbins, Ample Hills, Bluebell, Hagen does. It's like a finishing course for every ice cream maker in the country. Even Ben and Jerry's, they learned their craft there. That's quite a crew that's been there. Well, did you find any other food classes that were kind of like that, you know, a bit more prestigious, but still a little bit weird? Yeah, definitely. But before we get to any of that, I've got to share at least one more ice cream fact that I love. So did you know in 1967, Fidel Castro was so threatened by Baskin Robbins and the fact that America had 31 flavors of ice cream that he bragged that Cuba was already producing 26 flavors and they'd soon be producing 42 flavors. (laughs) I love the ramp up that he didn't just say they had more, that they really were working toward this goal. I know, but I don't understand why like 11 more flavors makes Cuba like a superior society. It's pretty intimidating. (laughs) Yeah, he said uh, they were going to put America to shame. (laughs) But back to your question, and and this one is uh, maybe my favorite class in this whole food category. It's called Gastro Diplomacy, and it's offered at American University in Washington, D.C., It's this really neat course based around the idea that food can be used to help increase cultural understanding between countries. Oh, wow. Well, that's pretty interesting. I mean, especially when you consider that for a lot of Americans, you know, that the most personal interaction they'll ever have with some foreign cultures really is through the cuisine they might try at their own home. Yeah. So Public Diplomacy Magazine, which, I mean, we were in the magazine business with Mental Plus for 15 years and I'd never heard of it, (laughs) but now I'm totally hooked. They did a study a few years back where they surveyed 140 people about eating other cultures' cuisine, and more than half the respondents said that eating a foreign country's food led them to think more positively about that country. Wow. So, you know, it's true. The way to people's hearts it really is through their stomach. Well, I like that idea. And, and how exactly, though, does this translate into a college class? Yeah, I was curious about that, too. But the students study wars and conflicts, so they might look at the Vietnam War or Ethiopia's Civil War or the Soviet War in Afghanistan. And then they actually take field trips to local ethnic restaurants 
you know, so they can actually taste traditional meals from these cultures and even get some FaceTime with immigrants who prepare them. It's pretty awesome. And the instructor, Mendelssohn Foreman, said, uh, I've got this quote, the idea is for students to hear from the cooks, from the owners of these places, about how they see their cuisine as a communication tool in their own communities. I think this one might be my favorite, too. That, that That's pretty cool. All right. Well, uh, do you have any others in that category? No, I, I think that covers it. Well, let's switch gears now from a course that challenges students to look outward at the people they share the world with to one that does the exact opposite. <laughs> so I'm guessing you're talking about that selfie class you were telling me about earlier. It is indeed <laughs> that one. All right. So this course falls into one of the broad categories I looked into and that these were classes that examine the use of social media and digital technologies. And the first one is commonly referred to as the selfie class, but it's more formally known as writing and critical reasoning, identity and diversity. And it's, you know, it's part social studies, part writing workshop. And one of the course's assignments challenges students to take five selfies of themselves and then write an essay on how the selfies produced or obscured a sense of their identities. You know, it's a pretty thoughtful course, actually. Hmm. Like the students are encouraged to consider every aspect of their pictures whether it's how they're posing, their clothing, their facial expression, the lighting and background, you know, even the gaze and the camera angle. And so actually here are a few questions the students were asked to think about. What in your selfies is accurate? What is obscured or ambiguous? Does the image portray one identity trait more than others? How is the viewer addressed in the image? What is the apparent context of this image? I mean, it's it's so philosophical. Can you imagine if Instagram or Snapchat made this the assignment that before you hit the publish button? <laughs> that everyone has to write an essay. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. And I, and I also love things that don't sound that smart on the surface and then end up being so much deeper. And taking selfies is like perfect. It, it, it's like the simple act of vanity. But, uh, but it's fun to think about what it actually says about ourselves. Right, right. And it's a crazy phenomenon. So Google reports that more than 24 billion selfies were uploaded in 2015. And that number only seems to be growing every single year. So did you come across any other courses that do this? You know, look at some of our questionable digital habits? Well, there's an interesting course at uh, Pitzer College called Learning from YouTube. And it was designed to evaluate what YouTube can teach us, you know, given that so many of its videos are somewhat educational in, its, in their nature. And, you know, they're, they're how-to videos or video essays about the philosophy of popular movies or TV shows. And one of the weirdest things about it, though, is that all of the coursework was not only about YouTube, it was actually on YouTube. <laughs> so the classes were all recorded and posted on the site, and all the students' essays were done in the form of videos and the comments on those videos. <laughs> that sounds super fun. Like, when I was in school, I always tried to do the project to get out of doing the work. Right, you know? like, right. And, but uh, is there an advantage to that style of learning? Well, maybe unsurprisingly, students determine that YouTube isn't all that great for learning, or at least not in the big classroom way that we're used to. It was it was daunting for them to have all their classes and homework on public display where commenters and trolls could ridicule them. And they basically concluded that YouTube can be a decent educational tool on an individual basis, but it's much less useful in a communal setting and probably works best just as a means of entertainment. That's fascinating. So I actually remember visiting one of my best friends who I thought was pretty handy but then he'd suddenly put a whole new roof on his house by himself. <laughs> and, I, and I asked him, like, how did you do that? How do you know what to do? And, and he said, YouTube. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> so he learned how to, I hope the roof is still yeah, working. It was, it was a solid roof. You should do roof. a follow-up on that. <laughs> but it's amazing all the information that's out there and, like, all the step-by-step -step instruction. But also, you know, to know where YouTube's failings are, are really interesting to think about, too. Did you find any new media classes that seemed, I don't know, a, a little more practical? 
Well, yeah. I mean, there's stuff like uh, there's one called smartphone photography at Portland Community College, and I'm sure there are other colleges that that teach this as well. And it you know basically teaches about the composition and lighting for the cameras that we're all carrying around in our pockets. And and I suppose that's useful, at least the kind of skill. And for me, you know, the most compelling course in this category was definitely Kenneth Goldsmith's Wasting Time on the Internet. <laughs> and we actually have him here to talk with us today. What do you say we get him on the line? I love that. Let's do it. Our guest today is a poet and, in fact, the first poet laureate of the Museum of Modern Art. He's an author of several books, but the one we're focused on today is called Wasting Time on the Internet. And it's based on a course he's taught at the University of Pennsylvania. Kenneth Goldsmith, welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm glad to be here. So, Kenneth, I was reading the first part of your uh, of your book, Wasting Time on the Internet, and I saw that uh, you were talking about this tweet that you uh, you put out in the fall of 2014 where you announced this new course, and, and the tweet said, my class called Wasting Time on the Internet will be offered at Penn next semester. And apparently this tweet just kind of blew up. Now, tell us what happened after you sent this tweet out. Well, you know, I mostly got a return tweet saying, you know, I've got a PhD in that. Uh, <laughs> you know, it kind of went slightly viral. And, you know, the way things go on Twitter, uh, I got a request from uh, the Washington Post for an interview, uh, which I gave. Uh, and it was published shortly thereafter. And then I think maybe another one for Vice. And I didn't give too many other interviews about it. But what starts to happen is that these uh, news sources get cannibalized by lesser fish, and they go down the food chain. Uh, and each time, it's like a giant game of telephone, my facts get more and more twisted. As a matter of fact, a lot of people were simply cutting and pasting what had been written before, slapping a new headline on it, changing the first sentence, and then posting it as their own original uh, content. Finally, at the end of the... Uh, chain of telephone about a month later, evidently a professor named Kevin Goldberg at Penn State was giving away PhDs in wasting time on the internet. <laughs> that, that's pretty funny. So would you tell us a little bit about the class and what actually takes place in it? The premise of the class is this. Fifteen people get together in a room with all the technology that they can possibly muster, and we waste time together. And that's the only thing that I require from the students. There's no papers being written. There's no nothing other than to actually be together in this room, wasting time on the Internet together. And what do you discover from that? I discover that contrary to the popular idea that technology separates us, uh, in fact, when we put technology in the room with us as a group, technology tends to act as amplifiers of emotion and affect. Uh, it becomes a hyper-emotional space driven by technology. So when we waste time on the Internet, we normally waste time, you know, at a Starbucks or a library, and we're alone, and we're feeling lonely. Uh, but once you begin to put those machines into a room with people who can actually talk to each other, some real magic happens. Now, I saw some of the assignments that you um, you gave out made, made students a bit nervous at first. You know, one of them was, you know, that they could... Um, basically take the laptop of another class member and look up anything that they wanted to on that person's computer, any files, any documents, anything like that. And then they passed the laptop along to the next person and looked at another laptop. And whether it was that or another assignment I think I saw was 
that the class together was supposed to start some sort of rumor and then spread that rumor. So with these sorts of assignments, which do sound really interesting, did did you ever run into any trouble? Did it ever get ugly? Uh, no, it never got really ugly because basically what I have on my computer is pretty much what you have on your computer. And it was kind of like, we, you know, we think all of this data is so precious, but in fact, it is precious to us. Um, but in fact, there's not much revelation. I remember when I passed my computer around, you know, sort of what, what came up. I, I made everybody leave the windows open that, had, that they had been open so everybody could see exactly what you had looked at. And, you know, my photos were open and, and somebody went and looked for a bank statement and, you know, there were a couple of searches for porn and maybe somebody cracked a new book of mine that was in progress. You know, first of all, there wasn't enough time to really dig down on it. And second of all, you weren't really allowed to alter, delete, or share anything on that. You could just simply look. Now, I've done this in, in, in groups uh, of up to four, 400 people, where 400 people put their laptops out, and all 400 people for 20 minutes could go around and see what was on everybody else's computer. I mean, it's really intimate. I mean, it's really... It's a way of breaking down the, um, you know, the kind of social uh, neuroses that does happen in a class. We all think, you know, everybody feels they're so private and so preserved. It was really a, a way of sharing, almost like meat-based social media, oversharing. Which is really fascinating. Um, I'm curious, what's your hope for a student's takeaway from the class? Well, I don't have any hope. It's not really... <laughs> it's not really uh, achievement-oriented. It's more immersive. I mean, it feels like a yoga session or something. You know, it feels like it feels like a, a, a psychotherapy encounter group. The digital tides sweep us into these incredible emotional directions, and we really can't tell where we're going. And at the end of the day, um, it gets uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of part of it, because if it's on the Internet, it's part of the class. Well, we can't wait to post this episode under the uh, title "Kenny Goldstone gives away PhDs to everyone." <laughs> but uh, thanks I so much, Kevin. I think it was Kevin Goldberg at, yeah. at, at Penn State. No, this is our so, own headline. All right. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, there we, you go. We really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us on Part Time Genius. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily. As I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she as my father believed, a witch. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery 
But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. talking about the weirdest things you can study at college. So Mango, I mentioned before how YouTube has become a place where armchair philosophers can think their way through the deeper aspects of pop culture. And, you know, then we checked out how this phenomenon is playing out in the classroom as well. So what are some of the strangest pop culture centric courses you found? Yeah, so there are classes like this for just about any movie or TV show or music act that you can think of, including at least four different ones in the world of Harry Potter. I mean, there was a symposium on Jersey Shore, but the one that really caught my eye is this class at UC Berkeley called Arguing with Judge Judy, Popular Logic on TV Judge Shows. There is no arguing with Judge Judy, but I I think I do have a couple older relatives who would probably ace this course. Yeah, so what I love is that the class doesn't take aim at Judge Judy herself, who was actually an important judge in New York City before she became this, like, sassy TV justice. But instead, the class focuses on dissecting the illogical arguments that the people use. So the example given in the course description is that when someone is asked, did you hit the plaintiff? The respondents will often say something like, if I would have hit him, he'd be dead, (laughs) which, you know, that's the kind of response that avoids answering yes or no and instead presents a perversion of standard logic. Yeah, I mean, those kinds of shows aren't exactly known for their strong legal defenses, though. Yeah, that's true. But it also isn't billed as a class on law or legal reasoning. The aim is really to discuss why these kind of logical fallacies are so widespread and as a side note, do you remember that article Matt Soniak did at Mental Floss? I, I think it was titled, uh, What Legal Authority Does Judge Judy Actually Have? Oh, I definitely remember that. It was one of my favorites. And, and I remember being blown away. He had mentioned how much Judge Judy reportedly makes. And it's something like 46 or $47 million every year. And this is all without really being in a courtroom. <laughs> it's crazy. None of those judge shows take place in real courtrooms. And, and they aren't real trials either, right? No, but they're often based on real cases. And, and the show will approach the two sides about coming on TV and having Judge Judy serve as the arbitrator. So the people sign contracts that bind them to whatever her decision is. But all that robe wearing and gavel pounding, that that's completely for show. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very bizarre. Well, how about some pop culture classes that skew a little younger in terms of audience? Did you uh, you find some weird ones there on maybe on modern music or something? So just about any popular artist from the last 40 years or so has at least one class devoted to them. I mean, I, I was looking and I found things from ABBA to Frank Zappa. There's even this one class at University of Missouri that looks at Jay-Z and Kanye West and makes this argument that they're polymaths. Since their work mixes all this visual and performance art into the rap. But I mean, if you're looking for more controversial topics, one of the most popular and most divisive classes I came across was from Skidmore College. They have a class called Sociology of Miley Cyrus. (laughs) And the aim of the class is to examine deeper ideas about identity and the interplay among race and class and gender, 
all by looking at the performer's music as well as her public image. And you, you said it was divisive, though, so I'm guessing people disagreed about, you know, I don't know, the academic rigors of a class like this. Yeah, I mean, the, the college was kind of accused of greenlighting the course as a way to get more admissions numbers and, and lure a certain type of less serious student. But, uh, but I don't believe that. And, and the school totally refuted it. And places like Time Magazine came to the course's defense as well. Like, they pointed out that classes that deal with primary sources are actually a cornerstone of good academic practice. And, and just because Miley's impact is fairly new, it doesn't mean there isn't value in studying her. Well, and, and I'm not sure if you remember this, but we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of Stephen Baldwin getting a Hannah Montana tattoo. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to answer why I know that, but maybe it's the right time to be teaching this class. Exactly. <laughs> and we got anything less polarizing? Well, I mean, in a similar vein, Rutgers has a course called Politicizing Beyonce, which is part of the women's and gender studies department at Rutgers. And and the idea is really to look at Beyonce as this agent of social change rather than just this successful performer. Right. And according to the lecturer, Kevin Allred, it, quote, really ends up being a class much more about black feminism and the current political realities of black women as opposed to just being a class on Beyonce. But her music's a nice way for students to enter the discussion. Yeah. So, I mean, it makes sense, right? Like the music's the hook, but the class also covers all these like black feminist authors like Alice Walker and Bell Hooks and stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, it does seem like a great example of the strengths of some of these unusual courses. I mean, they they do make for topical gateways into conversations that might otherwise seem daunting or maybe even irrelevant to these new students. And if you think about it, we're used to seeing novels and plays used as jumping off points for educational inquiry, but... Like Kenneth was saying earlier, our current culture allows for so many ways of reading and writing and expressing our thoughts. It it makes sense to use those in the classroom. Right. So so even though courses like The Science of Superheroes at UC Irvine or What If Harry Potter's Real, which is this course at Appalachian State U, um, they sound frivolous at first glance, but there's a case to be made for using them as a way to like frame and investigate all these age-old questions in a modern way. Well, and keeping students engaged has always been a challenge for educators. So while it wouldn't be smart to stop studying Shakespeare, for instance, I don't think it's a bad idea to look to newer stories and artists as well. So so long as there's still some substance there beneath the pop culture trap. (laughs) Well, speaking of substance, how about we break for a quiz? So our guest today is a Ph.D. researcher in the education department at the University of Cambridge and is also a contributor to Lego and Philosophy, a really fun new book. Tyler Shores, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I feel uh, honored to be on the show with you guys. <laughs> well, Tyler, tell us a little bit about this new book, Lego and Philosophy, and your your chapter in the book. Yeah, the uh, so the general premise of the book is that we know that Lego is uh, the largest toy uh, company in the world. And uh, the idea is sort of like, oh, we wanted to use Lego as an example. In my chapter specifically, uh, I use the idea that, you know, like when we think about Legos, we can use it as a way to, uh, it, uh, Lego can be a helpful analogy for how philosophical thinking can lead us towards new connections between thoughts and ideas. And Lego and philosophy invites us to question the idea of the nature of play. We can also think of Lego not just as a toy, but as a medium through which ideas can be expressed. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book. Speaking of uh, of Lego, I saw in the news recently there's now a professor of play at the University of Cambridge. Is that right? There is. It's the, it's the world's first uh, Lego professor. 
And, um, yeah, it's, uh, uh, because it is through the uh, edu- education departments, we, uh, uh, one of the things that we study is the idea of play and playfulness. And, um, uh, there are Legos in our department that we're allowed to play with too. And, uh, the idea is that, uh, he'll be starting, Paul will be starting in January and he'll take up the position of kind of like the Lego research center, uh, here at Cambridge. That's, that's pretty that's awesome. awesome. This is uh, totally different, but I, I, I was curious, you know, as, as Lego creates more and more of these sets that are specific for kids, like, do you still see that open-endedness with Lego, and does that play into your philosophy at all? A little bit. Um, I do talk about that, because that's been a big thing, at least since, like, I was a kid or we were kids, um, this idea that, like, originally there were a lot more builder sets, right, where it was uh, kind of like the big uh, box of bricks, and you just sort of like free build and these sort of things. So it's kind of it has been a shift, especially because Lego has become this sort of like transmedia uh, empire where uh, it, it's connected with all these different corporate and entertainment franchises. It has like moved towards the uh, kind of like that sort of thing. And I think it's not necessarily uh, it's not that one type of play is like better or worse. Uh, I think it's a different sort of imagination driven building versus. Uh, a more like storytelling and narrative play that tends to happen with the play sets. All right. Well, we know that you're used to giving tests to your students, but we're going to flip this one on you, and we're going to put you to the test, Mango. What game are we playing with Tyler today? It's a little game called Is That Really a Scholarship? Okay. So this is a super simple idea. We'll give you a scholarship name and a quick description, and you tell us whether it's real or something we made up. You ready to play, Tyler? All right. Okay. Yeah, lay it on me. We got five of these for you. Number one, the National Marble Scholarship. Since 1922, marble shooters, or MIBSTERS as they're called, have competed for up to $2,000 in scholarship money and the chance to be king or queen of marbles. Real or something we made up? I'm going to say real. Yeah, he's right. All right, one for one. Number All two, right. the Grapeco, Grapest Thing Since Sliced Bread Scholarship. If you can convince the judges why you're the grapest, you could walk away with $1,000 and a mini fridge full of the beloved grape soda. Real or something we made up? Ooh, that's tricky. This is getting into unknown territory because I've never heard of that grape soda. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say false. It is a delicious soda, but it's something we made up. So two for two. <laughs> delicious. Okay. This is a soda popular in the South. I introduced it to Mango, and he described it as tasting like carbonated Dimatap, right? But in a good way. In a good, oh, in a good <laughs> way. All right. So he's two for two. Number three, Zombie Apocalypse Scholarship. Just convince the panel that you have the best plan for surviving when zombies take over your school, and you could walk away with a cool $2,000. Real or something we made up? If that isn't a real thing, it really should be a thing. Uh, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say real. Yeah, wow. it is a real scholarship. Three for three. It's amazing. Oh, well, okay. Here we go. All right, number four. The Alice McCarver Ratchford Scholarship. This special scholarship goes to unattached female undergrads who live on campus, don't have a car, and haven't gotten any other scholarships. Real or something we made up? An awfully big scholarship. Um, I'm going to say made up. Oh, he's finally missed one. I thought he was too smart for us. I know. It is real, and it goes exclusively to women enrolled at uh, UNC Greensboro. Okay. All right. Last one here. The Tall Club International Scholarship. This scholarship serves the financial needs of exceptionally tall people. Real or something we made up? That sounds real. I'm going to say real. All right. Wow. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, the minimum height requirement is uh, 5'10 for women and 6'2 for men. That's terrific. All right, so how did Tyler do okay. today? Yeah, so Tyler won an amazing uh, four for five. And while we can't give him the sort of cash that's thrown out by the Michigan Llama Association or the Asparagus Club, we can send him a donut keychain, which is almost as good. Yeah, that is almost as good. Well, congratulations, Tyler, and thanks so much for joining us on Part-Time Genius. Awesome. That's going on my Twitter when I get it. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily. As I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Okay, so we've gone back and forth on food classes, new media classes, and pop culture courses, and now it's time to tackle everything else. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I came across like a whole bunch of uh, weird college courses that didn't really fit into any sort of category. Yeah, I definitely came across some really, really odd ones, so I'm I'm game for this. Uh, I'll start us off with one called uh, Dinosaurs and Other Failures. I love that title. (laughs) It's a course offered at the University of Michigan, and according to the description... This Earth and Environmental Studies course, quote, looks at the fossil record and the ecological issues of diversification and extinction of the ruling reptiles. That was pretty fun, right? I know, and legit. So here's a course that takes a much friendlier approach to animals, pet apparel, fashion, and design. And so it's taught at FIT, which is the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. And the course description touts that, uh, you know, I'm going to quote it. 
From bulldogs to American bobtails, pets are strutting designer stuff, and owners are vying for best-dressed awards for their four-legged family members. <laughs> <laughs> this hands-on workshop starts with an introduction to body forms, functional needs, and a seasonal fabric guide. Ease of dressing and safety tips are considered in relation to t-shirts, winter coats, and couture ensembles. That's pretty great. <laughs> Isn't it awesome? Actually, you remember those leather uh, red track suits that the, the fashion designers made for chickens and all that? <laughs> I love those so much. I feel like they made all the chickens look like Eddie Murphy in Delirious. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. I didn't think about that. All right. Well, I'm going to shift gears to uh, to a bunch of classes devoted to some pretty basic activities. Now, these are things that you'd really think need no explanation, much less an entire college course. So, for example, Center College in Danville, Kentucky, has a class called The Art of Walking. <laughs> and it encourages students to, quote, stop focusing on constantly doing and concentrate more on simply experiencing. Which, I mean, I guess that's a little of what the basket weaving guy was saying at the beginning. But yeah. uh, I know this is different, but but there's this indie video game company in New York called Baby Castles. And they only make art video games. And one of them was like all these levers and things that you have to pull just to get a person to walk. <laughs> I mean, like there are like hundreds of these things. And it's nearly impossible just to get your character to take a few steps forward. But the whole idea is to understand and appreciate like just how incredible your body mechanics are and everything it takes to get you to move. Yeah, which is pretty cool. All right, all right. Well, here's another life skill that you might not think you need to go to college for. Cornell University has a class called tree climbing. And it's a course <laughs> that teaches students, you'll be surprised by this, how to climb any tree. And even how to move from tree to tree without returning to the ground. <laughs> that's the that's only offered in the spring during the uh, the uh, peak tree climbing season. It says. I love that. Like just in, in case you're tired of the ground, and you don't want to return. Right. right. <laughs> so I came across one of these uh, basic activities classes too, and this one's from Princeton. It's a freshman seminar called Getting Dressed. Oh, give me a break. <laughs> I mean, that's what I thought, too. But after reading the instructor's course description, it does seem like there's a little more to it than just uh, tree climbing. Apparently, it's meant to be an examination of social significance of clothing and the relationship between clothing and identity in, in, in America. So. Yeah, you know, these course names are meant to hook people's interests, but, but some of them do seem to be a disservice to the actual content, if you look at them. Yeah, tell me about it. So I, I found a course on uh, at Occidental College. It's, it's just called Stupidity. <laughs> which, which sounds great. But then in the course catalog, it's described as, quote, a philosophical examination of the operations and technologies that we conduct in order to render ourselves uncomprehending. Speaking of uncomprehending, I'm not sure I quite follow that. I know. <laughs> so it's, it's basically a class about how stupidity is distinct from ignorance. And it uses all these heady readings from like Nietzsche and, and, and whatever. But so, so there's nothing stupid about it. But if I signed up, I'd be so upset that we weren't just watching like Dumb and Dumber or Beavis and Butthead. That was exactly time. what I thought. <laughs> That's great. Start our own class with that. All right. Well, probably my favorite course whose name isn't doing it any favor is called, oh, look, a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so, so that's really the name? Yeah, yeah. It's, and actually, that's kind of the point. So just like with stupidity or getting dressed, this is one of those offbeat classes that really only makes sense once you read the course description. And this one's a real gem. So I'll just go ahead and read it. It says, oh, look, a chicken will pursue ways of knowing through embracing what it means to be a distracted. I could sure enjoy a peanut butter sandwich right now. Learner as well as, oh, my God, I get to go to the beach this summer. Developing awareness, I need to trim my fingernails of one sentence. So you get the idea here. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not even sure what the what you get with it from the description. <laughs> well, I read an interview with the course's instructor. This is at Belmont University. And it, it seems to be about how distracted we are as a culture. 
and about the ways of dealing with that, including knowing when to embrace the distractions and, you know, how to push them aside so we can get back to whatever it was we were doing in the first place. Mm. Well, I mean, to tell you the truth, I was only half listening because I was thinking about all the weird stuff I've got to prepare for today's fact. <sighs> all right. Well, let's see what you got. <laughs> So, you know, with all the craziness happening in the world today, I might want to take this course from Michigan State. It's called Surviving the Coming Zombie Apocalypse. And uh, the subtitle is Disasters, Catastrophes, and Human Behavior. Wow, that's pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah, it sounds terrific because it's, it's actually this look at how humans behave during disaster times. And as the course catalog explains, quote, students in survival groups will face multiple challenges and tasks as they attempt to survive the catastrophic event escape death and preserve the future of civilization for the ability to survive ultimately rests not with the individual, but with the group. So that does sound pretty interesting, but I, I have to admit, I'm surprised you didn't start with a class that seems to be made for you. It's at Oberlin College and it's just called Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> Here's what the description reads. It says modern cartoonists consider Calvin and Hobbes to be incredibly influential and any fan will attest to its quality and reliability. But what makes it such a great strip? <laughs> I think you could answer that. <laughs> I know. And, and I'm totally envious of anyone who gets to take that class and just read Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah. But uh, here, here's another one that's fascinating from Oberlin. It's called How to Win a Beauty Pageant, Race, Gender, Culture, and U.S. Identity. And according to the course description, you actually get to take a field trip to a pageant in Ohio. I love that it includes the field trip. Actually, this episode is maybe going to just turn into this ad for Oberlin because <laughs> I have yet one more from there. It's called Magic, Witchcraft, and Religion, from Stonehenge to Harry Potter, and it's taught in London. So the quote from the uh, course catalog is, Through readings, discussions, site visits, and materials from the British Museum and elsewhere, the course will move through six major periods from Stonehenge and the Druids to Tolkien and Harry Potter. Field trips required. That's awesome. <laughs> I feel like Overland's turning in that like that school that everyone's dad says, I'm not paying fifty thousand a year for you to learn about beauty pageants and Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> I actually can't wait to be that dad in a few years. <laughs> well, uh before you start worrying that maybe we chose the wrong school, I want to let you know that you should be proud of our alma mater because it offers a course called California, Here We Come, the OC and Self-Aware Culture of 21st Century America. <laughs> and actually, Time Magazine defended this one, too. They wrote the course was this exploration of the hyper self-awareness unique to the OC. Oh, wow. I can't decide if I want to cheer or bury my head in the sand after that <laughs> one. But for the purposes of this episode, I think you've redeemed our university. So even though I was going to counter with a fact about a Tufts class called Demystifying the Hipster, <laughs> I'm going to give you this week's trophy. And I will take it. All and, right. uh, and and listeners, don't forget to send us the name of your weirdest college class you took or heard about. We can't wait to choose the top three. And you can send those to parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com. Or you can call our fact hotline 1-844-PT-GENIUS. So thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. 
Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? Hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at, at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.